The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Erica Holtz. Erica has been involved in aviation all her life, beginning her career in 2003 as an EIT with International Aero Products, where she became general manager and person responsible for quality to Transport Canada. In addition to her work on the 9,000 pound gross weight otter supplemental type certificate, including prototyping the wing and modifying the aircraft for physical and test flying, In 2007, Erica completed her professional engineering status with EGBC. She later led the negotiation for Harbor Air to obtain the 9,000-pound gross weight otter supplemental type certificate, as well as all other related design approvals. Achieving her delegation status as a structural delegate under the Design Approval Representative Program with Transport Canada, Erica became one of only eight structural DARs in the Pacific region and started her own engineering company in 2010. In 2012, she accepted a position as the Engineering and Quality Manager for the Harbor Air Group of Companies, where she created a production control system for the manufacturing department, acquired new design approvals, and manufactured a significant number of parts. Erica is also the Project Manager and Lead Engineer for the electrification of the DHC-2 Beaver Project, successfully obtaining the first electric flight of a commercial aircraft in December 2019. I am so excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Erica. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? I actually grew up in aviation. My dad was an aircraft maintenance engineer, and so I grew up going into the hangar to see him at work. Um, And the place he worked not only did maintenance of the aircraft, but his boss was a big proponent of modifications for aircraft. So when I was growing up, I not only heard the stories of the aircraft that, you know, had to be repaired or maintained, he would tell me of the modifications they would make to them. And he was part of the turbine conversion that they did for the otters. And so when I was uh, 19, I had the opportunity to work at a company like that that was doing um, a wing modification for a beaver. And so, yeah, it's it's not a well-known area that I work in, the certification of aeronautical product, but it was something I was aware of fairly young. I wasn't sure I was necessarily going to go into it, except that um, I really did love airplanes. Early in your career, you had led the negotiation of the 9,000-pound gross weight otter supplemental type certificate including prototyping the wing and modifying the aircraft for test flying. Could you tell me a little bit more about this process? Sure. That was kind of a um, more of a two-part question because originally in 2007, I was part of the team that did the upgrowth STC for the Otter. And it was a really complicated process because it needed multiple certifications in reality. So an aircraft has a, a type certificate. It's, it's like a blueprint for everything that goes into that aircraft. And if you ever want to change anything, you have to get certification from Transport Canada. And in this case, um, it needed three different STCs. We had to modify the floats that were underneath it to make them bigger, to hold the, the larger weight. We had to install those floats on the aircraft as a separate modification. And then we had to, to modify the wings and the fuselage structure. And uh, as part of that, 
um, the biggest, one of the biggest parts of that was the wings, because it's one of the areas that Transport Canada mandates must be proven through test. You can't do engineering analysis or judgments in order to prove that or validate that you think it's going to be good enough. You have to test it. So we had to build this huge steel rig to, um, to hang the wing under and then load it up with thousands and thousands of pounds of, of uh, we used shingles, <laughs> calibrated shingles. We weighed them before we put them on and spread them out over the wing and, and you have to take it to a to limit load. It has to be able to sustain a limit load um, infinitely, basically, without any any failure. And then it must sustain the, the ultimate load, which is 1.5 times that, uh, for at least a minimum of three seconds. And in that case, you are allowed some deformation, but not catastrophic failure. So that was like a really big, interesting part of that project. And then once you've proven all the structure, um, you have to do flight testing. And so we had to take the aircraft out at full 9,000 pounds gross weight and fly in different uh, different variations to prove the new flight characteristics and performance characteristics at 9,000 pounds because the aircraft behavior changes, right? How long it takes to get off the water, uh, its climb performance, all those types of things can be affected. Its stall speed, everything can be affected by that. It was actually a huge project. Um, and so that was the project that uh, I worked on for a number of years and helped me get my uh, professional engineering status uh, with um, APEG BC, as they were called then. Now they're EGBC, the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of BC. They shortened their name. It was a bit long. <laughs> and uh, then after that, when I left that company and moved over to Harbor Air, the negotiation part was more um, Harbor Air wanted to secure a lot of these assets for themselves and so I helped them with the negotiation of which design approvals and STCs they really needed to have in order to support their fleet. And so was part of the reason as you said it took years to work through this process the fact that it took so long because there were three STCs or it was just because that's generally how long these processes take? This one was more the resources there was only only me um, and uh, the fellow I was mentoring under as the, the delegate, um, the two of us were, did all the engineering work on the project. And there were, yes, the three STCs um, to get through all three took a long time. And they were fairly intensive STCs. Sometimes you can have really short things where, okay, somebody wants to change a seatbelt or change a door latch, right? And, you know, okay, you get a drawing data package together, you do a bit of validation work, but it's not that big a deal. This was This was major, so it took a lot longer. Now, having worked in that flight testing environment for the STCs, particularly with the otter gross weight increase and now the Beaver E-plane, what goes into designing a flight test regime for a modification? So it starts way back again at the type certificates. Um, when you are applying to make the, the, the design change, you, you give a project description to Transport Canada, and then you list, you look at the basis of certification that they would have had when they created the type certificate. So it lists all the regulations that aircraft had to meet. And we have to look at it and say, okay, what are all the ones that could possibly be affected by what we're doing today? Okay, we're going to prove those again. So a lot of it's fairly prescriptive that way. Uh, for the eBeaver, it was completely different because we weren't validating anything. It was a proof of concept flight. So we used some of the, the um, characteristics and requirements as a backdrop for, for, for putting it together, what we wanted to prove, but we weren't validating um, how it, you know, it, it meeting any specific performance requirements because it was more, okay, if we put it up there, how is it going to behave? We don't know, what is it going to do? We're not trying to prove a specific number. We were trying to determine what it was capable of. And so that one was more a risk-based, a risk analysis based approach, which looked at 
okay, um, what are all the things that could go wrong? How are we going to mitigate all those possibilities that could go wrong so it is safe for flight when we don't know exactly what's going to happen when it's up there? A lot of it had to do with assume that uh, the aircraft, the, the electric propulsion unit stops working. Right? Let's just assume something goes wrong with the electric system or the battery system. There was an emergency shutoff. Almost all paths led to this same conclusion. If this goes wrong and, and the pilot can't handle that, shut everything off, the aircraft's now a glider. So we actually had the pilots do some, um, some uh, power off landings to practice in case you know, they had to shut the system down in flight. Uh, that is something they, they typically practice anyways, but we made sure that leading up to the actual flight, they practiced this at the full gross at 5,600 pounds to make sure they, you know, they, they felt how the aircraft was going to behave and make sure that that was in their mind, that this was effectively, you know, all, all paths led here. Stuff went really wrong, shut it off, and landed. Now, you're one of only eight Transport Canada structural delegates in the Pacific region under the Design Approval Representatives Program. Can you explain to me a bit more about the process of becoming a delegate and what the work entails of a DAR? Again, fundamentally, since all aircraft are certified to a type certificate data sheet that's um, done by like the big companies, you're talking like Bell, Bombardier, Boeing, they get this type certificate data sheet. They're called the Original Equipment Manufacturer, so OEM, and the aircraft certified. What delegates mostly do is looking at the aftermarket. So people buy these aircraft and then they want something changed on it. They want something slightly different. Often you can go to the OEM if that aircraft is still in production and ask them to incorporate a change. But unless there's a, a good ROI on that for them, they're not necessarily going to integrate that because if they're not going to make any money at it, they don't want to expend the, the cost to certify it. So the delegates, we come in at that point because we assist the operators and maintainers with repairs and modifications that they want to make that are outside the bounds of the original type certificate data sheet. So to become a delegate, um, you have to have a, uh, an engineering degree uh, from, a, from a university. Um, you have to be able to be registered or be registered as a professional engineer. Uh, but the big part is having the six or more years of experience working with Transport Canada. They want to see your skill sets. They want to understand what your experience and knowledge base is. And they also evaluate you from a, let's call it a trust perspective. They want to know that they can trust your judgment, that you're not going to operate outside the bounds of your delegation. So this process can take um, quite a long time. And they don't, there aren't very many. It's, it's partly because um, it's not well known. There aren't a lot of people who are, you know, chomping at the bit to become a delegate. It's a lot of, it's a lot of responsibility. And uh, aviation doesn't make you a boatload of money, as many people seem to think. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's, it's not highly sought after. And then the problem for the delegates is because there are so few of us and there's a lot of work, um, there's not a lot of time to try and train people to come up. To, because usually it's like, okay, we got to get this done. I don't have time to show somebody else how to do it. I'm just going to do it myself. So that, you know, the, the replacement rate's pretty, pretty slow. Um, I'm DAR number 345, which makes me the 345th delegate certified in all of Canada at the time I was delegated in 2010. That's since the program was, was created. Would you be able to share with me a modification that maybe you were able to oversee as a DAR? Uh, sure. I actually just did one uh, recently that was outside of the Harbor Air Group. Uh, we were asked by another company to modify a window on a Super Puma helicopter. 
So there's a push-out window in the front left behind the, the pilot. And it's an emergency exit window, but they wanted to be able to also open the window in flight so they could look at the cargo hook operations that are happening beneath the helicopter, right? And so we had to design, so I had a couple of um, engineers working with me, and they designed the change. So we, it's, we put a, a metal frame around it and put a hinged window on it. And uh, this was actually interesting. I didn't think it would end up being as, as big a project as it did because we had to do physical testing to prove that we could still push the window out in an emergency. We had to functionally test that the window would operate um, as expected, both on the ground and in the air. And then uh, I'm not as familiar with helicopters as I am fixed wing. And we learned halfway through the, the program that we would have to do a fairly intensive flight testing program to prove that we didn't alter the vibrational characteristics of the helicopter any speed. So we had to do, I did, uh, it was almost two, two and a half days of flight testing where we took this thing and we, we took it, tracked down the runway at uh, 45 degree increments around the whole 360 of the helicopter. We had to do low speed. We had to do high speed. We had to do it with that window open, with it closed. We had to do it with the, uh, the big cabin doors open with them closed. <laughs> and then my favorite part was everything closed up. This was so much fun. We had to take it beyond its never exceed speed. So uh, all aircraft have a, a, a certified do not exceed this speed. And they get there by exceeding it by 10% during flight testing. So then they can always make sure that nobody's ever going to exceed the safe speed of the helicopter. So we had to uh, take the helicopter up and effectively dive until we hit 10% uh, above V&E and make sure that everything still seemed good. So um, we just finished that this past uh, January. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, at the end of it, I was left with about uh, two inches of paper. That's how we knew we were done. <laughs> as soon as the paper weighs the same as the modification, we've decided we're finished. That seems like a very good rule of thumb. I, I admit I'd always wondered how VNEs were decided, and so knowing that uh, the, the number itself that's ultimately published is, t I guess, ten percent lower than what is tested in a, in a flight testing scenario, and also the idea of like I, I think I'm pretty good at math, but the idea of trying to sort out forty-five degree increments to test vibration that just <laughs> that that blows my mind. <laughs> it's pretty standard for helicopters. It was new to us. They call it the azimuth testing. Um, so it was it was interesting. Uh, it was it was way outside of of our comfort zone and wheelhouse. We were doing because we're usually what they call normal category fixed wing aircraft. That's our primary background, and we were working on a transport category rotorcraft. So it was it was way outside of our our normal working areas, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. Um, more difficult than I anticipated because I'm like, it's a window. <laughs> it's just a window. But that's what happens in, in certification of modifications. Once you start validating it, you can end up down some really interesting rabbit holes. Now, how did you begin your role at Harbor Air? So that pretty much leads back to that 9,000 pound uh, gross weight kit for the Otter. So we actually, the company I was working at, developed that initially so they could modify the Harbor Air fleet. Right. So we not only at that company created the modification, um, but we also actually physically modified a lot of the floats and installation gear and made all the, uh, the parts for that conversion for hardware. And during that period, um, I was in close contact. I was part of the I was doing the general management of the company at that time and ended up in that same period taking over the quality management of the company I was working at. 
and I was in close contact with the president of Harbor Air and the uh, the then PRM, uh, person responsible for maintenance at Harbor Air. And uh, just after that, uh, they lost their quality manager. Uh, he left the company. And so they were looking for a quality manager, but I also know they were looking at improving their ability to perform modifications on aircraft, even at that time. This is way pre-e-plane ideas, but they were constantly modifying things on the aircraft and they wanted to bring that ability in-house. So uh, they asked if I would come over. So, And um, I've always really liked Harbor Air. When I was a kid, we, ha we have a property up the coast and Harbor Air would fly in constantly bringing people up and down the coast. It was just something that you always saw. If you grew up on coastal BC, you've seen the Harbor Air planes. They're just sort of part of the background. And so to be, have the opportunity to, to work with them was exciting for me. So currently you work as the engineering and quality manager at the Harbor Air group of companies. What does a typical day look like in your role? Let's say no day is specifically typical. <laughs> um, I oversee the quality management, which means we audit all the processes uh, at the company. The company is very complex. We actually have five different certificates and each one has to be audited to make sure that we're following all of the Transport Canada regulations for the maintenance, the manufacturing and the airline. And, but not only do I oversee that, um, basically that I work with the people who are also then trying to change the systems or fix the things that need to be fixed. So we look at, okay, if we're supporting the aircraft maintenance engineers, the mechanics on the floor, what do they need? Well, they need to, they need training, they need knowledge, they need access to publications and they need access to tooling. And so our job is sort of to create the systems that that run all that, make sure that they're trained properly, make sure that we can test their training, make sure that they have all the publications, make sure they have all the tooling and, uh, you know, altering that process as we need. So on any given day, I could be talking to the training department or the technical writing department uh, or the, the auditing department, as well as, of course, the R&D and engineering department. So I have my fingers there. We usually hold a couple meetings a week about, you know, the e-plane or other projects that we're working on at any given time. So, and because of COVID, I have been spending a lot of time on Teams, having Teams working meetings. <laughs> I can imagine trying to manage all that through a Teams meeting adds an extra layer of challenge to everything. My, my worst meeting, it was the best but worst. We were doing project planning for the e-plane and I don't know if you've ever done any project planning, but you usually put a board up on the wall and you start at the end of the project and you try to work your way forward and figure out every single task that needs to be done. And I was doing that on Teams while they had the board at, at the shop. And then, of course, there's, you know, the floor hanger noise riveting. And every time that happens, it interrupts what I'm saying. So I have to wait for that to be done. This went on for about five hours. <laughs> I was sort of, okay, okay, I'm never doing project planning over Teams again. Somebody's going to come and pick me up and bring me into work if we have to. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've done different Zoom meetings, different Teams meetings. I don't think I've ever had one that's been five hours with interruptions, so I would, I would have lost my mind. Just kudos to you. <laughs> I was on a... Uh, a ball, a yoga ball, and I, one of the guys, the only one of them could see me, and I was sitting there sometimes, and I'd be bouncing on this ball, because I'm just like, okay, I'm going nuts, and then some, he said sometimes he'd look over, and my head was just down on the desk, he's just like, <laughs> just waiting for it to be over. Now, what is the most rewarding aspect of your role? I think for me, I am one of those, um, again, probably most aviation people, the real type A personalities like to fix things. And so being able, like I'm in a position where all day long I solve problems. It's what I do. 
doesn't matter which area I'm looking at. If somebody's looking at some of the QA stuff, the training, the manufacturing, it's usually something didn't go right. How are we going to fix it? Um, I like removing pinch points for somebody, knowing that we made something easier for somebody else or that we improved the experience for somebody else. You know, uh, a lot of the stuff we do on the aircraft is to improve um, the experience either for the pilot uh, or for the passengers. And knowing that we had something to do with that is rewarding to me. And uh, I really like it when people tell me I can't do something. And then we go and figure out how to do it. That's my favorite. In 2019, Harbor Air successfully conducted the first test flight of an all-electric seaplane. Leading up to this flight, you worked as the project manager and lead engineer for the electrification of the DHC-2 Beaver. What was it like to lead a groundbreaking project in aviation? It's really hard to put that one into words. It, it was a bit of a blur. Uh, we worked on it solid for about uh, eight or nine months, I would say. And I was wearing two hats, as you indicate there, but they're very different hats. The project manager, um, it was my responsibility to ensure the project got to where it needed to be. It needed to fly before the end of the year, right? That was, that was the mandate from the CEOs of the two companies. And so I had to make sure that that was going to happen. On the other hand, as the lead engineer, as the delegate on the project, I had to be prepared to make a safe for flight statement that I agreed that this aircraft was safe for flight. Um, I couldn't let the company's desire to achieve their goal interfere with my judgment, right? That was that was a, a hard balance, but um, luckily for me, the company I work for, Harbor Air, uh, they understood that. They pushed, of course they pushed. They really wanted to get this done, right? But at the end of the day, I knew that if I said I was not prepared to allow this aircraft to fly, that they would have respected that. Um, so that was really important to me. Um, the people we worked with were amazing. Uh, they were so brilliant in their fields. Uh, we were, it was, it was both Harbor Air and Magniex, and we were working with people. I don't even understand half the words they were talking about these, these, um, power electronics engineers that design the inverter system and all that. Um, we had no idea. Like it was most, some of this stuff was just a black box. We're like, okay, that's a box that does something cool. Okay. We got to put that in the airplane. All right. I'll handle that part. What does your box do again? Okay. Interesting. But we didn't fundamentally understand that, but they were so absolutely brilliant. You knew if, if I went to them and said, okay, um, we need to do something about this, they'd go away and they'd figure it out and come back to me an hour later. It was a really cool relationship that way. I think they were um, awe-inspired by what we were able to do. If they said, okay, we need this bracket to do this, somebody would have it drawn, cut, bent, painted, drilled, and ready for it to be put in the aircraft usually in about two hours. Yet they, they do the same thing on the on the software side for us. So I think it was, it was a really good mesh there with the people. Um, but one of my, my standout memories of that day that where I had to, and I had to wear both hats, it was like two days before the, uh, we got the flight permit. It was four days before the actual, four or five days before the actual first flight. And uh, the, there was another delegate there. He was the electrical delegate and I was the structures delegate. And the two of us were making the safe for flight statements. And we were there to witness the testing that day. So I was supposed to be wearing my, my delegate hat, my engineer hat that said, okay, is this, is everything doing what we expect it to do? And they were running through the tests on the ground and we kept running into errors. And we were about halfway through the day. It was just after lunch. And he and I were sitting in the, the break room. We'd kind of taken over with all the Magniex people and us and everybody's in the room. And he's sitting there and he's sort of shaking his head. And, and uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get there. And Magniex people were sadly drinking some coffee, trying to work through whatever was going wrong at that moment. <laughs> and so I took off my engineer hat. I put my project manager hat back on. 
and I, I, I whipped out what I call the uh, the puppies and rainbows speech. <laughs> I think I literally said there will be puppies, there will be rainbows. We're going to get back out there and we're going to make this work and it's going to happen today. <laughs> so everybody piled back out of the room and uh, it was really cool that night. That was the night we worked until I, I can't remember when nine or 10 that night. And at the end, we were all sitting around uh, the tables. The CEO of Magniacs was there as well. And we went around one by one to each person in that room and asked if they were ready to make the safer flight statement. It wasn't just me and the other delegate making the safer flight statement. In a way, you know what I mean? They, they were all there to say, we all think that it's safe for flight. Um, that was a really, it was a really cool moment on that work. And, but it was, yeah, it was definitely flipping back and forth between, okay, I'm project manager right now. Everybody get up and let's go. Put the engineer hat back on. Okay, what are you doing here? And let me make, show me that it works. So when you would have had everyone uh, part of the team that had to individually make the safer flight decision, uh, what were some of the things that they were focusing on beyond just the idea of, well, the electric engine would stop working? A lot of it more had to do with uh, the functionality. If something went wrong, did the right message make it, make it to the pilot? That was the fundamental thing is like, okay, if anything, so a lot of what we were testing at that point is sort of failure testing. You're testing that if something goes wrong, what's the information that gets to the pilot so that he can make the best decision possible at that moment, right? And so it was more, okay, we all agree that everything is functioning as it should, and if something did go wrong, the right message is getting to the pilot. And so they walked through everybody who was in that room because you had your power electronics engineers who were saying, yes, if anything happens at the software level for the inverters, we're going to get the result we, we need. And on the structure side, we're all saying, okay, if anything ha goes wrong here, yes, we've got all the information we need and the pilot gets the correct report, right? And so it was making sure it was, MagniX did have to sign a safer flight statement as well for the engine. And then there was me and the other delegate who signed ours for the structural and electrical at the aircraft level. But I think it was more a show of support from the entire team saying, we're not just saying that you, we know that you guys are signing that, but we're all, we're all in agreement. We, we think it's safe for flight. Now, as there are no regulations or design standards currently accepted for electric aircraft, what is it like designing a plane while also trying to develop the regulations to safely build it? It's interesting. Um, a lot of the key work is currently being done by Magniex. So fundamentally, one of the things they're trying to do, uh, and I think they, they're, they're there now, uh, they were just getting there recently where they were getting their basis of certification accepted by the FAA and Transport Canada, which I know it's, it's semantics can seem like a small thing, but they're getting their electric propulsion system declared to be an aircraft engine. It's an important distinction because that means if they're an aircraft engine, they can be certified as a FAR Part 33 yeah, part, part, part 33 engine. And if they can get certification, a type certificate as an aircraft engine, then it's much easier for us on the installation side because I've got a certified engine to install, right? Okay, it might be different, but it, may, it, it met that requirement, which means I don't have as much work on the installation side. I still have to deal with the, the battery side. And that's going to be interesting moving forward because a lot of the lithium ion regulations that are out there are, are not based on people using lithium ion batteries as the main source of energy for the aircraft. They're usually support systems, right? And then everybody's afraid of lithium ion fires. So a lot of the regulations have been sort of thrown after the fact that says, okay, well, you know, lithium is, is unstable. And so we have to make sure we have all these systems in place to, to support that. Um, in this case, they're not cert certified as, they haven't been certified as, as the main source of energy for the aircraft. So 
our, our tactic is going to be to use a, a new amendment that came out. So FAR 23 is the current regulation for normal category aircraft. And they came out with an amendment number 64 a couple of years ago in the States. Canada has not quite caught up on that, but they promised us they will. Uh, and its intention literally was for innovative projects to get be able to get certified because the prescriptive regulations pre, pre that amendment um, are so slow to develop that the industry and innovation outpaces it. So you don't have a regulation to, to look at. So this amendment was created that sort of pushed the, the standards and requirements into industry. It says, okay, well, you tell us what standards you're going to meet. We'll review them and decide whether we agree that's good enough or not. And then once we've done that, you can use those. So we're going to have to take a look at that. Which is which is interesting. Um, we have a lot of support from uh, from industry experts on this um, who are who are are working on this. So uh, we're still not positive exactly how we're going to get this done, but uh, we're working on that. Now you touched on the idea of the batteries as they relate to the electrical engine. What kind of operational requirements have to be met for the sort of quote unquote fuel reserve when it comes to a battery pack? Currently, it's it's going to not be changed. I don't know if Transport Canada is going to to alter that or any any civil aviation authority. Right now, in order to calculate your reserve, you have to have uh, 30 minutes at your basically minimum cruise um, performance, right? And so we can just still make that calculation using the batteries that says, okay, we can make sure that we have this much um, supply of energy that meets a 30 minute reserve if we were just flying at at you know basic cruise or um, power for level flight, right? Uh, the only difference is, you know, if you're near the end of that um, and you have to do a go around or apply apply power, there is a little bit of a difference there because um, fuel is always going to give you 100% of your power. But when you have drained the batteries down to a certain level, uh, you have to be careful about that because you could overdraw the power and, uh, and have too much of a current pull, right? So, that is not in the regulations. The regulation as it's written, we can meet that through calculating your minimum power performance requirements to, to maintain crews, right, for 30 minutes. And we can calculate. So that was calculated in for our first flight. Uh, they did give us an a little bit of an alleviation because we were over water the entire time. And that basically means we're over the runway the entire time. We can land at any time. Um, they allowed us for the purposes of, of our initial flights here to have a 20 minute reserve. But Right now, the expectation is we'd still have to meet a 30-minute reserve. Now, electrical aircraft have been the next step in aviation for many looking to the future of light aircraft. We've seen advancements in engine and battery designs and are starting to see hybrid aircraft on the near horizon. Do you see hybridization as a logical step to electrification, or is the technology advancing at such a rate that it is unnecessary? I think our hope is that technology advances sufficiently fast enough to make hybridization unnecessary for our specific mission profile. At Harbor Air, we're you know 20 minute, 25 minute point to point flights, um, so we can already meet that requirement. Uh, our calculations right now, we can meet that 20, 25 minute flight just with a fewer passengers than the Beaver would actually hold right now. So I don't feel like we're that far off. I don't think the technology is that far out of reach, and it doesn't need such a huge advancement. Um, for us to meet that particular mission profile, to have four or five people on board for 20, 25 minutes, you know, we're not far off that now. So I don't know that we would look at hybridization um, currently for our larger aircraft. That might become um, a requirement. But I know um, our, our CEO right now is really, it's really about the, the fully electric experience right now. So we're going to try that first and we'll see what, what happens later.
Since 2007, Harbor Air has been the world's first carbon-neutral airline. Looking ahead to Harbor Air's future, combined now with the process of electrifying the fleet, what is next? I think I would hope we would continue to help the electric aircraft revolution keep moving forward, assist others, um, or do the work ourselves to certify other aircraft types. I mean, there are, there are hundreds, thousands of different aircraft types out there. And I, I know that like right now our mission is, is to do our fleet first. But after that, I mean, we'll have the uh, the experience and the, the knowledge. I think um, I think I'd really be looking forward to us then sharing that knowledge or doing work for others to certify other aircraft, especially some of the smaller ones like the Cess Cessnas, you know, the 172, 180, 185. They're smaller, you know, two, four passenger kind of kind of configurations you're looking at. Um, and I think that I think that as it as it becomes more and more mainstream, as it happens more and more, I think we'll do more of the aircraft so that eventually you don't have anybody maybe flying on uh, carbon emissions. And so the aircraft that you've listed there are sort of lighter general aviation and trainer aircraft. Do you think we could see the electrifying of larger aircraft, more sort of commercial operations? I think that's going to take longer and will probably require hybridization or something, um, you know, for the size. It's going to be really interesting, though, post-COVID, um, you know, what size of aircraft becomes the norm around the world? Do we return to using the jumbo jets or do we stay with more smaller regional aircraft? It's it's going to be really interesting. Um, but the bigger aircraft, I, it's it's a ways off still, unless there, that needs a significant change in the technology to make those ones commercially viable, for sure. But I think we could really target general aviation, um, and that's, that's, I mean, it's not as much emission as, say, yes, the big, the big airlines that are out there, but it gets us closer. Now, what is your favorite part about working for Harbor Air? I'm going to be trite here. It's the people. Um, it's, a, it's a company full of just these incredibly passionate people. Everybody is really passionate about the whole thing. I feel like everybody, they're living the mission statements and the values. It's not just words printed up on the wall that, you know, marketing put up there one day. Um, they are passionate about the experience for the, the customers. Um, the level of care for the staff and for the aircraft and for the customers is huge. Um, I go to work every day knowing that I will be fixing problems, but I do it knowing that I will have a team of support no matter what we have to do. And they're all they're all committed to, to figuring it out uh, and, and making the best possible experience for everybody. So I, I love the people. What advice would you have for someone considering an aviation career? Uh, love it, have patience, and keep trying. Um, it's not an easy industry to get into. Uh, it's not always easy to stay in it because it's not it's not run of the mill. It's not humdrum. It's not middle of the road. You're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. Um, you're going to have really super exciting days, like flying the uh, the e plane for the first time. Um, but you're also going to have days where nothing goes your way. It's highs and lows. You're not you're not just going to work and doing the same thing every day. So. Um, it takes a lot of patience and you really need to, to love it. It's not a job, it's a vocation. Um, for the people who succeed in it, they love what they do and they live it every day. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? I have a couple. Uh, the eBeaver flight, um, what they, what didn't go um, on the media was the day before the actual flight, we had to do a little skip test to, as our, to satisfy Transport Canada before we could do the flight. And so on that day, uh, we got to launch the plane and it was all the engineers who worked on it, that the teams who were involved in it, um, and not a media event, there was nobody there. And it, it felt like it flew just for us. 
didn't really fly, technically flight, skip flight. <laughs> but it would that was the moment that was for us that we got to see our our product do what what we wanted it to do. Uh, so that that was a really cool day. Um, one one other highlight uh, was about ten years ago. I was working on a project. Uh, up at Muncho Lake. If you've never been to Muncho Lake, it's amazingly gorgeous. And they were doing um, external loads. So Transport Canada, if you've ever seen anybody strap like a canoe on the side of a seaplane, you have to be certified to do that. And so I was up there working on that. And I just remember sitting there one day as we, it was in the middle of August, we're flying over this jade green lake. <laughs> and I'm getting paid to be in this aircraft while we fly around this lake. And I remember thinking, well, I've got the coolest job in the world. Uh, that was that was a I don't know it did that day just sort of hit me. Um, but I think my one of my very favorite memories. This is one of the way one of the reasons I stay in aviation. This is one of the things I think is really cool about aviation. Uh, when I very first started as an EIT, um, the delegate I was working for had just finished a project on a PBY, a Catalina. It's an old seaplane, uh, gorgeous old thing. He just done some bubble windows on it, and uh, I got to go in it on a test flight. And along with us was this gentleman. And he'd been in the Navy, and in in the war, uh, his ship had been sunk. And he was telling us the story of how, you know, they had they were in the rescue boats. There were people hanging off the rescue boats, and they're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, sharks are swimming around and and picking people off the boats. It was it it sounded brutal, but his his memory of that was of a Catalina flying over that was the the, the surveillance, the reconnaissance that found them. And so he came along with us on this flight. And this is one of the reasons I love being in aviation. Every aircraft has a story. There's something that always reminds people of something. It's not always war stories, although that's that's many of them, but the aircraft means something to people. They they have they 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 hit people uh with a very visceral reaction. And it's not just that. At Harbor Air, you hear it with the customers, you know, who get to experience a seaplane ride for the first time. It's so exciting. They feel they have to write into us later. You know, we help, we help people get somewhere they desperately need to be. Uh, we, we carry essential goods to places where it might not be able to go. Um, but it always has a story. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about being in aviation is you find anybody who works in aviation and they can tell you five good stories right away. It's, it's something to belong to. Erica Holtz, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.